Take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19, Acts 19. There are typically two reactions American Christians will have when they read about miracles in the Bible. Some, and this is probably where most of us might fall, is we just get bored with it. We take it for granted. Mark Galley, a former pastor in California, tells of a group of Laotian refugees who were going to his church, and they were interested in being members of his church. So knowing that they knew little about the Bible and all, he decided to have a, a Bible study with them through the book of Mark. And as they did that, they came upon the passage where Jesus was uh, uh, calmed the storm. And so Galley immediately went to, uh, so let's talk about how, you know, Jesus can help us in the storms of our lives. They were kind of looking at him kind of queerly, and he was like, uh, maybe they don't understand. So he said it again. They asked, do you mean that Jesus actually calmed the wind and the sea in the middle of a storm? Galilee thought, uh-oh, they're going to doubt then that this actually took place. But it was actually the opposite. They said, well, if Jesus calmed the wind and the waves, he must be a powerful man. And at this, they nodded vigorously and started chatting excitedly. And Galley says, they were full of wonder. Everybody was full of wonder in the room except for him. And he's the pastor. <laughs> and he realized that they had grasped the story better than he did. So may God help us restore the, the wonder and the amazement and respect that should accompany these miracles that we read about or that happen in our life. A second reaction, and this is becoming increasingly so, even with those who call themselves Christians, is a skepticism to be incredulous towards the miracles. There's a growing number of people who, for some reason, still want to be called Christian. Frankly, I don't understand this. But they deny the created order of the universe. They deny the origin and preservation of divine revelation in the Bible. And they deny basically any miracle that makes them feel too out of place with the scientific naturalists who rule academia. In a 2013 article in The New Yorker about faith and belief, Adam Gopnik made the following statement, I quote, we know that in the billions of years of the universe's existence, there is no evidence of a single miraculous intervention with the laws of nature. And then he concluded, we need not imagine there's no heaven. We know there is none. And we will search for angels in vain, end quote. Well, he makes these statements making a pretty big assumption that there is no way that any supernatural activity could ever take place in this naturalistic world. Some folks intone the statement of Carl Sagan, who was famous for saying, the cosmos is all there is and ever will be. Got to be honest with you, I have a hard time understanding why people who believe these things still find Christianity attractive or want to be associated when they strip the miraculous from the biblical narrative. 
All you have left is a Jesus who is unrecognizable from history, who is unable to save humans from their sin. Apparently, these faith communities must have awesome potlucks because I don't know what else would cause them to come together and celebrate. My hope for us today is not that we would dismiss or discount or or degrade the miracles of the Bible in any form or fashion, but that we would take them for what they are, a historical account of God's activity in his people and that it would give us hope today that God is capable of doing whatever he wants to intervene in our lives. So let's read our passage. Let's stand as we look at Acts 19, 11 through 20. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Luke had to have laughed as he was writing this, all right? And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. What an interesting phrase, extraordinary miracles. You would think that all miracles would be extraordinary, but this has a special emphasis. Luke is acknowledging that this story is out of the ordinary of how God typically intervened. Now, certainly God intervenes in human history anytime he wants. However, in, in Bible history, there were specific periods in which miracles were especially pronounced. For instance, the time of Moses, the time of Elijah and Elisha, the time of Jesus and the apostles. Doesn't mean that God was limited to those times, but just that there was a a concentration of miracles during those seasons. I love it when Peter was preaching at Pentecost. He quoted from the prophet Joel, basically saying, we're in the midst of one of these times when he said in Acts 2.19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. So when Luke writes that there are extraordinary miracles happening in Acts 19, it is within one of those miraculous seasons during the apostles. But there was an unusualness to the miracles of Acts 19. 
within a period of a proliferation of miracles. These are important things to remember for anyone who wants to, you know, start selling prayer claws as we dial the number for the guy on TV and then God is going to answer our prayers or to get water from the Holy Land to get some special inside move to God. You know, we run into trouble whenever we expect every descriptive narrative of the Bible and make every one of those stories prescriptive in every detail. Notice that it was God doing the miracles, not Paul. Paul was the conduit. God was the power doing the miracles. What made it extraordinary was the use of handkerchiefs and an apron as the touch points for ministry. Now, notice these items were not encouraged by Paul, but apparently they were used by the people in their zeal to see God work. You know, God is not going to let a faith, even if it's a naive faith, to get in the way of him working in people's lives. The power was obviously not in the clothing. It was God who was doing the work. God was not requiring them to fill out some, um, you know, miracles application to see that they dotted every I, crossed every T in their theology of the supernatural. They had faith, and God honored that. You know, the handkerchief was kind of like a do-rag for Paul to wear on his forehead when he worked making tents, wipe his forehead while he was working. The apron was also worn while working, and the, the text makes it sound like in such a way that this was taken from Paul's shop. And people were hoping that this would assist them in being healed and having demons cast out, and apparently it worked. It would also help us to understand that Ephesus was rife with magicians, sorcerers, and charlatans who produced incantations and believed superstitions to get their particular idol to act for them. Attached to the statue of Artemis, who we talked about last week, the city's chief goddess, were certain symbols which were turned into these magical formulas. Of course, we know from these other passages that we read in the Bible that when you are worshiping these idols, there's something going on behind the scenes. Deuteronomy 32, verses 16 and 17 talk about this when the Israelites were in apostasy. That means that they were worshiping idols instead of the true God. And it says there in Deuteronomy, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with admonitions, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. Those are the idols. Now, this is what the Ephesians grew up with. This is what was in their world. This is what they would have known. So for them to relate a cloth to have God to heal, you know, we might think that's not the best way to express your faith, but God was taking that uninformed faith and starting with where they were at. And it's not the first time we read something like this. Remember when the, the lady touched the hem of Jesus' garment? Or earlier in Acts when Peter's shadow went over somebody and, and healed them? 
Now, we don't read of an incantation being said over the apron of Paul, like the idol worshipers. We don't read of certain sayings being embroidered along the apron for good luck. They didn't anoint this clothing with water from the Jordan River. The approach of people looking to God stands in contrast to the practices of the magicians during that day. The handkerchiefs and apron, they were not tools for magic, just like, you know, Moses' staff wasn't. You know, the bronze serpent, or, or like I said, the, the shadow of, of Peter. These were tangible items that apparently God used to steer people towards faith in him, put their trust in him. And I find some encouragement in this. I don't know about you, but I, I think this is good news for us because God is not expecting perfection before he moves in our lives. He's not asking us to you know, align every behavior before we express faith or serve him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it, it gives permission for known disobedience. But many people feel like you know, they're not fit to participate in any activity like going to church unless they get everything just right. You know, they struggle with certain sins in their life and they feel like they're going to be a, a hypocrite if they walk through a church door. And I'm like, every one of us are, have sinned. So welcome to the club, right? I mean, a church is a redemptive community that lives out the gospel. That's what it's supposed to be. Some feel they, they can't serve God because they're racked with guilt from the past life. But we all have our stories, right? We all have a past in which we have struggled or are currently struggling with a sin cycle. A church is a safe place, should be a safe place. Unfortunately, it's not always this way. But it should be a safe place where people can experience forgiveness, learn how to live in, in humble community. You know what, man? I am struggling with this. Hey, let's, let's talk. You know what? I know what you're talking about. See, the gospel doesn't just save us from personal sin. The gospel also paves the way for us to enter into community with confidence that we're not alone. It's a place where joy can be found. You, know, you may come to God out of a, a sense of desperateness. You get that, you know, with an apron and a handkerchief. But, you know, maybe that's all you know. I mean, you come with an apron and a handkerchief that's soaked with sweat, and God accepts that. It's there that God can meet you, fill your heart with his grace. And it's from there then when God touches us at that point of need and you realize, boy, he really has intervened. There's a gratefulness that springs forth from our hearts. And it's from there we enjoy community. It's from, from that position of humble gratefulness that we serve, not out of somebody beating you over the head of reminding you of what your responsibilities are before God. Yes, we have responsibilities, but it should be from a heart overflowing with gratefulness for what God is doing in our lives. So you know what I say? I say, welcome all of you who've committed sexual sin. Why don't you write that point down? 
Welcome to all of you who are divorced. Welcome to all of you who are materialistic. Welcome to all of you who have struggled with anger and been hurt and abused. We welcome you because some of us have tasted the forgiveness of God and the fruit of repentance when we believe the gospel. And we welcome you to partake. But we know when we do this, that right behind that is going to come some opposition. Satan loves to counterfeit. Satan loves to muddy the waters of what God does. So we read verses 13 and 14. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the, the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now we've noted before that at different points through Acts, especially when God was introducing the gospel to a different uh, people group, like Jews, Gentiles, Samaritans. He would provide special miracles to affirm the Holy Spirit's work. But right after that, or closely in that same context, there was always opposition or a counterfeit. Satan was trying to deter the advancement of the kingdom. Shortly after Pentecost, you might remember, Peter and John were brought before a, a Jewish consul, and they were getting on their case for healing someone. <laughs> Isn't it just like much of the religious culture to come against a fresh move of God because they didn't come up with it? Because they can't control it? When God was moving in Samaria, Simon tried to replicate the move of the Spirit. I mean, he wanted to he wanted to buy the secret sauce of the apostle. And I want to do that same thing. Here's some cash. Counterfeits confuse the masses. It's always happened throughout history. I remember speaking to a class at Drury once. A teacher asked me to come in, and it was to be a debate between me and a, a Catholic priest on the effects of the Reformation. I think it was very disappointing to the teacher because we didn't fight. I think he wanted to see us duke it out. In fact, the Catholic priest said, you know what, I, I think there were good results of the Reformation. I'm like, dude, you're not a very good Catholic. But uh, anyway, that was, <laughs> it was great. I mean, we, you know, we actually kind of agreed most of the time that we were talking, but still. The point is that one of the students when we were there who sought to dispel the Bible asks, are all the Bible miracles just some form of retelling ancient myths? For instance, the, the Gilgamesh flood myth is simply another version of Noah's flood myth. The idea is just to throw anything up against the wall, see what sticks and could hopefully deter people from believing the truth of God's movement. And for the uninformed, Man, this works. That's why philosophy can be just a, a mud pit. Everybody has a question. Here's reality. No, you know what? That's not reality. Just question everything, and at the end of it, people are just like, oh, I give up. There must be nothing that's true. 
And these tactics work for the uninformed. So Luke identifies our subject as itinerant Jewish exorcist. Now that's a mouthful. That's quite a job description. I mean, with their Jewish education and background, you know, they, they tool around in their demonic exterminator chariot. And it's likely that this was their livelihood, so they did all this for a nice fee. And Jesus spoke of Jewish leaders seeking to cast out demons in Luke eleven nineteen. so it's not like it was unusual for Jews to delve into the supernatural activity. What was unusual is that these Jewish people were invoking the name of Jesus. And if that didn't work, then throw in Paul for good measure. And since these men had no personal relationship with the Savior, no moral or spiritual integrity that we know of, to engage the powers of evil, their tactics didn't work. Now, we're told that these are seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest. That's a problem, because... Every historical account that you can find that lists the high priest never mentions this guy. Some say, well, he was a pagan high priest, but that doesn't fly because it says he was a Jewish high priest. A more likely scenario is that Sceva was maybe a part of a priestly family and may have been throwing around the name to kind of get in and influence other people the name of being a, a high priest. So he made claims about having the position that weren't exactly true. You know, kind of like those who go around and call themselves a doctor or professor and they have no earned doctorate. Now, Sceva was a real high priest. It's doubtful he would abandon the Jewish temple with which was a prestigious and lucrative position, and move his family to the western shore of Asia Minor as some kind of Jewish soothsayer. So probably just a guy who claimed to have this inside track and has seven sons or followers. It could also be followers. But what do these guys do exactly? Well, in that culture, there's a lot of historical accounts that tell us how this kind of magic was practiced, especially among the lower classes in the Greco-Roman world. I'm going to go through this quickly, but at least kind of gives you an idea as to, you know, how this took place, these magical powers. One is that they had complicated rituals. Two is that they had magic spells and recipes that they followed. Three, they was a reciting of various names for various gods or even non, nonsense syllables in hope of, you know, landing on a combination of sounds or names that would force a power to do their bidding. And of course, again, we know what kind of power was behind all this. I mean, the more exotic the incantation, the more effective it was deemed to be. For there was a reliance on a professional who usually demanded payments to get the job done. Fifth, there was syncretism, mixing of all kinds of any religious stuff that served their purpose. And then there was coercion and manipulation as opposed to 
supplication before a holy God and, and relating to people well. You know, as I read through that list, is it, is it me or does this sound like a lot of churches within Christendom who invoke formulas or certain music for conjuring up the power of God or the spirit of God, bringing in a specialist to cajole and manipulate people, you know, having a form of ministry that just focuses on outward signs instead of character and spiritual fruit and integrity that should be a part of what we do. I mean, we, we can't be so naive as to think there aren't counterfeits within our group. And I, I'm speaking of all of evangelicalism. Now, I don't say this so that we can become skeptics, right? So that we can doubt that the Holy Spirit even moves. I believe he, he moves genuinely and he, and he wants to move in our lives. But we have to be discerning, right? We have to be discerning. I'm not here to criticize others. I'm just here to try to, as a, to be honest with myself and with you about that not everybody who says it does it. You know what I'm saying? Not everybody who says the words are walking it. I mean, I could stand up here, and I've told you this before, and it may, may sound good to you, but if I'm not accountable, if people are not asking me the hard questions, and I'm living a life completely different of what I'm saying up here, I'm a fake. And there are a lot of fakes. I'm not immune to that. That's why you can pray for all your spiritual leaders, that there be a, an authenticity there. Not that you don't struggle. You can be honest about those struggles. That's the best way of being a hypocrite. Just be honest <laughs> with what you're struggling with. Uh, to, to not be a hypocrite, I mean, is to just be honest. Okay? But there are counterfeits. Now, because someone uses the name of Jesus and maybe even looks like they heal somebody up on a stage and even speak in tongues, that doesn't mean they have the approval of Jesus. I mean, we're not that naive, are we? It doesn't necessarily mean just because there's an outward sign that God is behind that. Because someone sings passionate songs and prays loudly and skillfully doesn't mean necessarily that they're filled with the Spirit. There's nothing wrong with any one of those things I just mentioned. I'm just saying you need more than just that information to determine that this is a genuine thing. That's why I like long-term ministries to where you get to know people. You, you can attest that this person is for real. In Paul's case, though, there were immediate signs that outed these fakers. I mean, really, you can write this down. If somebody runs out of the building naked and bleeding, there's probably something wrong going on in the building. So we may not have those signs to tip us off. So we allow time and relationships to kind of test a person to see if their life matches, matches the message. And in the case of these men, the demon said, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
Now, Luke uses two different words for no. This is kind of interesting when he refers to Jesus and Paul. The change in verb is like a kind of downward digression of familiarity. In other words, he's saying, the demon is saying, Jesus I know well, Paul I'm vaguely acquainted with, but these seven sons are completely unknown in terms of spiritual power, and therefore, I'm not going to listen to a word that they have to say. In fact, I'm going to kick their rear end. That's exactly what he did. Now, I've had the unpleasant experience of dealing with demonic episodes in others, and you never want to deal with something like that if your life is obviously hypocritical or your motive's tainted or you're not prayed up because you'll not be able to stand to the opposition. You don't bring a butter knife to a gunfight. Usually we don't have demons testifying to us about the authenticity of somebody. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but usually that's not been my experience. The majority of time, our discernment will be tested in the context of a community. That's why we have special speakers come in, but we want to make sure we know who those people are. You know, I'll have like good friends of mine that I've known over the years that I want to come. I just don't want to stick any Yahoo up here, even if he's popular. You want to know who they are, right? So it's in the context of community that we can usually find these things out. There's a story in Canada, a true story, about a rabid wolf that walked past 150 sled dogs to get to a village, and he attacked a grandmother and her grandson. How did this wolf get past 150 sled dogs? They were all tied up, kept apart far enough to where they couldn't fight each other, kept in isolation. And their isolation kept them from doing anything about the wolf attack. My dear friends, alone and isolated, we present ourselves as an easy target for the evil one. And as we enter into genuine community in a body of believers, we arm ourselves with the benefit of a whole host of gifts and strengths that we otherwise would be without. It's another way of saying, I need you. We need each other as we live this life out. We can help each other as we live in community. It's why our our life groups are so critical to our spiritual lives. Now, you don't have to be in a particular life group, but you do have to be, I think, in an intimate community to be growing. So if it's not a life group, I hope it's something else. But we have to have this continual communion, fellowship that is drawing us to the Father and to one another. Let's pray.